So we have a special treat today. Uh, my brother Lawrence uh, is going to be bringing the word in just a minute. I'm going to be reading the scripture. Uh, anybody in here, if you've ever gotten a handshake from Lawrence, then you know who Lawrence is, right? I've been going to physical therapy for the last couple of weeks, trying to get my shoulder back in place uh, from one of those handshakes. Uh, Lawrence is a great dude, great brother, great member here at Renaissance, has served us on staff in different capacities. Uh, great brother. I'm going to get out of his way um, and just read the scripture first. Uh, it comes from the book of Philippians. It's written by a man named Paul. Paul is an author who wrote a lot of books in the New Testament, and he's writing this letter to a church, and we've been studying for the last number of weeks all about this concept of joy. And here's what Paul is talking about in verse 12 through 21 of chapter 3. He says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and I now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Right after, we're going to play a video, and right after this video, when Lawrence comes up, I just need y'all to show him crazy, ridiculous Renaissance love. So as soon as this video is over and he comes up, show him some love. What you read to me? Yeah. Same thing it is to you. You tell me. No, no, you tell me. <laughs> no, no. Because <laughs> I could talk to you for it's such a long time. It's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. It's like, how do you tell somebody how it feels to be in love? How are you going to tell anybody who has not been in love how it feels to be in love? You cannot do it to save your life. You can describe things, but you can't tell them. But you know it when it happens. That's what I mean by free. I've had a couple of times on stage when I really felt free. And that's something else. That's oh. really something <laughs> else. Like all, all, like, like, I'll tell you what freedom is to me. No fear. I mean, really, no fear. If I, if I could have that Half of my life, no fear. Lots of children have no fear. That's the closest way, that's the only way I can describe it. That's not all of it. But it is something to really, really feel. Have you, have you, like, no. I've noticed that. Like a new way of seeing. Like a new way of seeing something. Good morning, Renaissance. Oh. 
Oh, man, this is love. <laughs> oh, man. Good morning. I already know that what I'm about to say is going to connect with y'all. So thank you so much for the warm welcome. Um, now, today, I want this to be a conversation. You're not being lectured at. Uh, this is a conversation about God. <laughs> yeah, we had to put that up there. So I need three, I need three things. Uh, number one, I need you to be honest. I need you to be honest with me. I need you to be honest with yourself. Uh, number two, um, I need you to talk to me. I need you to talk. I need you to respond. I need you to respond like you're doing. And number three, I need you to respond to him. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank God that you invite us into your house because this is your house. Uh, God, we thank you that the word is living and God, it makes us alive. God, I pray, God, that the word, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, makes us and brings us alive today. Holy Spirit, have your way. In Jesus' righteous and holy name, amen. Uh, so my name is Lawrence Aja, and I knew exactly what Nina Simone is talking about. I know exactly what she's talking about. Because I was a child with no fear. Like, I had no fears at all. Don't be fooled. Uh, that, that, that was, I was a pretty adventurous and uh, troublesome child. Um, I did things like I went and built a tree house in the middle of the woods, almost a mile away from my house, by myself, stealing wood that my dad got from Home Depot. Um, I also, um, I also uh, climbed the closets and shelves around our house, uh, trying to just you know, get to everything that my parents hid. So I was a pretty adventurous kid, but this adventure that I'm about to share with you, uh, it, it kind of uh, it takes things over the top. Now, um, I need you guys, this is very special to me, one of my favorite movies of all time, but how many of you guys have heard of Mary Poppins? A show of hands. Mary, yeah, I'm a G, I, I watch Mary Poppins. Uh, so a quick snippet, Mary Poppins uh, was an English nanny um, who was played by uh, the amazing Julie Andrews. And Julie Andrews, I need you to get this nugget. Julie Andrews won an Oscar. She won an Oscar for this role in Mary Poppins. So I need you to know that she's convincing. So one afternoon, one afternoon, you know, I was home and nobody was home. I don't know where they were. Um, and so I was home chilling and then I turned on the TV and Mary Poppins was on. And I actually turned it on right in the point of the movie when Mary Poppins, there was actually an interview for new nannies and this family and wind blows away all these other nannies and then Mary Poppins comes in on an umbrella. Like she floats down on an umbrella right in front of the house. And I'm like, Oh my goodness gracious, like why didn't I think of this? It changed my life. I was just like, you know what? So I finished the movie and I said, like, whoa, this is, this is perfect, this is great. So the first thing I did was I went all around my house. I took every umbrella that we own. I took every umbrella, I took every umbrella, and then I went to my backyard. And we have a radio fly, I had a radio fly. I remember the radio fly, a little wagon? I had a red wagon. I put all my umbrellas in there, I had like eight. Right? So I took it down the street, Deborah Drive, Piscataway, New Jersey. I was walking it down the street. I knocked at my best friend's house. I was just like, don't ask me any questions. I need an umbrella that you're not using. He was like, all right, cool. So he gave me an umbrella. And at the end of it, I had like 12 umbrellas. And so I went to my backyard, and we had a deck. And this deck is about 15 feet. It's a pretty high deck from the floor all the way up to the, the railing area. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh. Now, I had enough sense to say, Julie Andrews, because she convinced me, Julie Andrews has one umbrella, but because I have 13, I'm going to be able to come down like a Jeep, like so slow, so cool, right? And I would have I went on this roof, but I couldn't get up there. So I took all the umbrellas, I had it like this. And so I climbed up, went on the barbecue grill, went, went, up, went on the side of the, the railing, and I was just like, I can't wait. One, I had them all open. Two, three, I jumped. Immediately all you hear is whoosh, 
All of them go up. I hit the ground. I'm, all, I'm like on the floor, just like, like, like Last Dragon. I was going. I was sitting there. I was like, oh, oh my gosh. And, you know, lucky for me, uh, there were no bones broken. But I'll tell you what was really broken, my spirit. My spirit was broken <laughs> because Julie Andrews lied to me. She was so convincing. And I was just like, Julie, how could you do this to me? Right? But the funny thing, as childish as it sounds, it's something we all could relate to. Because ultimately, we have things that we want to pursue, people, things, dreams that we want to pursue. And we're afraid to take the leap of faith because we're afraid once we take the leap of faith, we're going to uh, you know, end up in a lot of pain, with a lot of disappointment, and ultimately feeling like that whole jump wasn't worth it. And now it's a fear, it's a universal fear that we all could relate to. It is. And the sad thing and the hard thing is uh, when we think about this question, uh, you, know, what, uh, you know, what would you do if you have no fears? This question actually resonates with a lot of us. It really does. But it's actually hard to answer this question if you don't know what type of fear you're talking about. Because we could be talking about serious fears and not so serious fears. And like I said, we're going to be honest, uh, one of my most serious fears is uh, getting to the end of my life and dying alone. And I know I'm not alone in that, uh, but you know, as I said, I didn't want to be too grim up front. One of my most serious, serious fears uh, that I have um, is um, I fear I'm going to lose my hairline before my wedding day. I, I really fear, <laughs> brothers, brothers, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, Jesus, please, come on, bring her now. I need her. She, I, need, I need my hairline to be intact so I can meet my wife. And the funny thing is I catch up with Jordan like once a week, and I see him, and he doesn't have to say a word. But every time I see him, I'm reminded this can go any day now. And so I'm just like, you know what? You know what? I, you know, I'm frightened. This is frightening for me. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. It's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, but seriously, um, uh, my, most, uh, my biggest and my greatest fears actually involve God. I fear that I'm going to work hard my entire life, and I'm going to get to the pearly gates, and God is going to not be happy with me. He's going to say, I gave you healthy parents. I gave you health. I gave you boundless educational opportunity, and this is all you did. I fear that I'm going to make the wrong decisions in my career with regard to my relationships, and I'm going to get to the get, and God is going to punish me. I ultimately fear that living a life as a Christian ultimately means I'm going to be uncomfortable, and I'm going to be suffering all the time, and ultimately I will not be able to experience joy. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about fear and fears about God. Now, there's a big difference between having a fear of God and having fears about God. A very, very big difference. And you, if you have unacknowledged fears about God's existence, his goodness, and whether living a life in Christ is actually worth it, you're going to struggle to pursue him. And if you struggle to pursue him, you're going to struggle to experience joy. Now, the past few weeks, uh, we have been looking at the book of Philippians, as Jordan said, and uh, really exploring the theology of joy. And here at home, here at Renaissance, we've defined joy as settled hope and confidence in God. Again, settled hope and confidence in God. Now, uh, the beautiful thing is that Paul had joy. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the Philippians, he wrote all these letters in the news, he had joy. And Paul was in prison. And Paul was in prison but he was free. And he was free because he had no fears about God. He knew God was real. He knew God was good. And he knew living for God and even dying for God was worth it. Uh, so if we look at our scripture, 
Um, it's interesting, when I encountered today's scripture, the specific one we're looking at is 12 through 14. In 13 and 14, uh, uh, Paul says this. He says, uh, but one thing I do, uh, forgetting what is behind and straying towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, Paul uses the word here, strain, and what he means is, uh, in you and my relationship with God, uh, we would push past its normal limits. You know, we would encounter an obstacle in our walk with God, and we would push past that. Seems like a very simple thing. And when people commonly speak about this scripture, uh, they commonly talk about it within the context of running. They use the analogy of running. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually was using that analogy. Um, many of you may or may not know, uh, track and field is one of my, my, my love, my first loves, and um, it's quite enticing. For many years, I thought that I was going to be an Olympian, represent Nigeria in the Olympics, um, and it didn't necessarily work out that way. But you could see, and you imagine that when I looked at the scripture, it was tempting for me to wanted to see in the scripture, just talk about running, talk about run harder, talk about uh, run stronger, do all that. Um, but if that's all we see that Paul is saying, then I think we miss a major message that Paul is trying to share with us. Uh, because the reality is, we're all straining. Nobody has to tell us to strain. We're all straining towards something right now, whether we realize it or not. It could be to get a new job. Uh, it could be straining in our health. It could be straining for relationship, straining to have a child, straining to become partner at the firm, straining to raise money for that new startup. We know what it means to strain. So this is not new. Uh, but Paul's central message is a little bit more. He's saying, and he's asking, he's like, it's not a question of if we're straining. The question is where we're straining. And what Paul wants to do is that he wants us to help us overcome our fears about God that get in the way of us pursuing God. That's exactly what Paul wants us to do. Um, and so what's interesting is that Paul is kind of really hammering this central message, and this is our message and headline for today. You can't experience joy without overcoming your fears about God. You cannot experience joy, the settled hope and confidence in God, without overcoming your fears about God. Now, the things we strain towards are not bad things. No one is saying it's bad things to become, want to become a partner in the firm, wanted to be married, wanted to do all things. But uh, the, the central issue here is that these things are insufficient and ineffective in leading us to joy. They're insufficient, right? And so ultimately, the big question we have to wrestle with today is why is it that we tend to strain towards these things here on earth and we struggle to strain towards God? Now, Paul, Paul has an answer to that. He answers the Philippians, he answers us, and uh, he says that we struggle because of fear. Now, in early in the letter, he challenged their fears about God. And what he wanted to affirm to them was that God was real. Even in spite of me being in prison, even in spite of people opposing you, God is real and God is actually working. Uh, let's look at um, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, in verse 12, Paul starts by saying that uh, what has happened has actually served to advance the gospel. So what he's doing right there, he's speaking directly to their fears, their doubts, because logic leads that if this person who helped to plant the church in Philippi was telling us about God having faith and that we were justified by faith and not by the circumcision, now by following God is in prison, if his path is in vain, then naturally ours is in vain. And so Paul didn't want that to happen. 
and he wanted to encourage them. And so the real piece is, what about you? What are your fears about God? Do you fear that you're going to follow God, you're going to pursue God, you're going to show up every Sunday, and that at the end of the day, you're going to get to the end of your life, and you're going to say, this wasn't really worth it? The truth is, if those fears dominate you, then it's going to be nearly impossible for you to pursue God. And even if you do, you're going to struggle to experience joy. Now, uh, I believe that there are three main struggles that we have, three main fears about God. Is God real? Is God good? And is living for God worth it? Again, is God, good? Is God real? Is God good? And is living for God worth it? The first fear, uh, is God real? Because if you question whether or not God is real, naturally you're going to struggle to strain towards him. Now, it may seem like a foregone conclusion, yes, we're in church. I understand that. A foregone conclusion that we are asking the question, is God real in church? But the truth is, both for Christians and for new people alike, we struggle with this question of, is God real, particularly in times when we're dealing with difficulty and uncertainty. And it's not just a Christian discussion. It is a world discussion. We are enamored with that question, which is why the movie Heaven is for Real did nearly $100 million at the box office. You know why? It's because the world, we are so enamored with this question, is God, is heaven really real? Now, what's interesting is that a few weeks ago, uh, we actually talked about this a little bit, and Jordan and Jessica uh, graciously shared their story of suffering. And one of the things that came from it was that even before you could even get to being angry with God, even before you can get being angry with God, you question whether everything you ever believed about God was real, whether God was really around, whether God was true. And so when you look at your TV screen, when you look at your news feeds, and you're looking what's happening in the world, you're looking what's happening in your life, the natural question is that you're, actually, you're naturally going to question whether God is real. Is this guy really real? Now, the situation, I have to set the situation in Philippi, and we've talked about this a few times, but Philippi was the, one, the first churches planted in Europe. Now, Paul planted this church, and his, his headline message was, you don't have to do all of the things, all the list of things that was listed in the Jewish law. We know all those people are telling you to be circumstanced, but all you need to do is have faith. So he's telling about something they can't see. And now the people that were opposing the Philippians were saying, yeah, uh, God plus all of these other things is sufficient. You need to be circumcised. So he's essentially giving this to say, hey, do things you can control, do things that you can see, and you actually, actually will uh, ultimately be justified in faith. And Paul was giving them another message. So Paul understood that this was going to be hard for them to deal with if he didn't encourage them. Now, the reality is, uh, one of the biggest things that, uh, you know, it's hard, particularly for people who are struggling with faith in general, is that um, God being real seems like such a distant concept. And a big elephant in the room, and I hear this particularly in conversations with uh, uh, people who are wrestling with it, who have been hurt by the church, is you say God is real. You say God is real. But funny, funny, funny that I find it that uh, all of the people who follow this real God are fake how, how real is that God when they're not real? You want me to follow this real God? And they say that this is how they live, and I see how they live? That's not enticing to me, right? Add to that, we're skeptics by nature. We're skeptics. And so in order for us to believe something, we got to see it. You, got, you convince me. I got to see it. I don't understand. And so funny story was, uh, any recovering consultants in the house? Hello? Nah, I'm by myself. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, I was a consultant at McKinsey for many years, and um, I, one of my team members one day came in the team room, and coincidentally, his name was Paul. 
And Paul came in the team room, and he's just like, hey, guys, um, uh, at this time, Barack Obama, it was Barack Obama, I like calling him President Barack Obama, it gets me very upset, but he was still a, a candidate at this time. So he came, he's like, Barack Obama was in uh, the gym this morning, I saw him on the treadmill. I was just like, oh, man, that's, that's cool, I didn't have any reason to doubt him, but my teammates, they were looking at him like, you know, like that Kevin Hart, really? You know, they were like, you know, orangutan, you know, they kind of gave him that look. And the first thing that they said is, did you take a picture? He was just like, nah, I ain't, I ain't take a picture. And what's funny to me was that I didn't know Paul for a very long time. I didn't know Paul for a very long time, but what I knew about Paul was that Paul was a decorated veteran in the army. And Paul came across as those hoorah type standard uh, 0600, I'll be there in the morning. He was that type of guy. So for me, I'm like, okay, of all the people, why would, he, why would Paul lie about this? And so similarly, Paul in the Bible, Paul was widely known as a person who jailed Christians. He persecuted real Christians. Everybody knew it. So if one day the guy who persecutes Christians knows, every, knows that he persecutes Christians, comes up and says, uh, Jesus Christ is real, the gospel is real, he's, he's, he's proclaiming the gospel, it's very hard for me to believe that that guy, of all people, would lie, right? Now, what's funny, what's hilarious, get back to the present, uh, at the end of the day, we finished, the, 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 we finished in the team room, it was about 9.40, but we could take a black car, so we got in the black car, and we went back to the hotel. And so we got to the hotel, we couldn't get into the entryway of the hotel, because there were all these big black cars and all these big, you know, like big navigators and all that. And what's funny is that we, none of us saw like Barack Obama outside, like waving at us saying, hey guys, it's me, you know. He wasn't there, but the teammates that were skeptical, they were like, oh, it, he, okay, he definitely was there, right? But nobody saw him. And it's funny, but that's how God works. God gives us real people and God gives us real circumstances to attest to a real God. And that's how he works. Uh, another thing I actually attested to this was actually last December, there was a big article in the New York Times, I love reading New York Times on Sunday, uh, not the other days, but on Sunday I read the New York Times, and uh, Nicholas Kristof is a uh, you know, famous columnist, and he was speaking with uh, uh, Dr. Timothy Keller, who was the former lead pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, a big church here in New York. And the larger question was for skeptics. He was saying, what do you say to people who uh, question the resurrection, who question whether God is, is real? And, and, and I love uh, uh, Pastor Keller's uh, response because it was very compelling. And he leaned on a great theologian and scholar, N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright uh, was the author of a great book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. And he says this, that it is difficult to come up with any historically plausible alternate explanation for the birth of the Christian movement. It is a card to account for thousands of Jews virtually overnight worshiping a human being as divine when everything about their religion and culture conditioned them to believe that was not only impossible, but deeply heretical. The best explanation for the change was that many hundreds of them had actually seen Jesus with their own eyes. And the message is clear. All evidence in history points to Jesus Christ being the realest, most powerful being that ever walked this earth. And if you struggle with that, if you question that, you're going to struggle to pursue him, and you're going to struggle to experience uh, joy. Now, this second fear, I need you guys with me. The second fear we have is a really, really big one. Is God good? Because even if you believe God is real, but question he is good, you're going to struggle to strain towards him. And if you struggle to strain towards him, again, you're going to struggle to experience joy. Now, I need you guys with me, please. I'm going to say something. I need you to be with me on this. God is good? All the time. And all the time? Yes, I love that. I love that. 
I love that. Uh, and so what's interesting is that for many of us, uh, it's not so much about whether God is real. The question is whether God is good. But even if we believe somewhat that God is good, we question whether God is good to us. We question that. And God's goodness is a sermon series in and of itself, um, and so we're not going to unpack that fully, but I think it's helpful for us to actually touch on this a little bit. And I know for many of us, I need to ask you a question if you've encountered any of these thoughts, whether they were your thoughts or thoughts of friends that you know. How could that God that you talk about be so good when my life is a living hell? How could that God be so good when my best friend, my best friend, who pursued Jesus, who, was, who, who believed in him, lived a good life, was a good person, good person in the community, is now battling breast cancer. How good is that God? How good is that God when I've been faithful and I'm on my fourth miscarriage? How good is that God when I've done everything that this Bible has told me to do and everybody else is doing something else, but I'm still alone? How good is that God? Don't tell me about that good God when that good God supposedly has been everything but good to me. Is that you? Is that true? Now, the truth is, we either see God as this harsh, angry judge or this distant, evil father that lets bad and evil things happen in the world and lets bad and evil things happen to us. So consciously and unconsciously, we struggle to strain towards God. We struggle because we question God's goodness and good intentions for our life. Now, if there's anyone, anyone in the world that understood this tension, it was Paul. Because Paul was writing this letter from prison. From prison. And what's interesting is that Paul actually started this letter with gratitude, with thanksgiving, with joy. And he did that because he had no questions about God's goodness and good intentions uh, for his life. Now, uh, there's a, a very good scripture. We let's talk to it. Uh, Philippians 1, 3 through 6. Uh, Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, again, remember, Paul is writing this from prison. And I remember the first time I encountered this, I said, why isn't Paul upset? Why is Paul angry? I would understand if Paul was writing, uh, God, I followed you, I, I've been per I persecuted the church, you were great, cool, but I'm suffering and I'm upset. I would understand if Paul uh, said that. But the reality is, is that Paul had joy. And Paul gives us some insight into how he was able to have joy in that circumstance in our scripture today. Let's look at chapter 3, uh, uh, verse 12. Paul says, not that I've already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, we've said it multiple times, and it's worth stating, Paul persecuted and jailed Christians by the boatload. He did that indiscriminately. Now, you know, you guys know people from New York who go down south, and they love to rep that they're from New York because it sounds like they're tough, but they're really from Scarsdale. Y'all know people like that, right? Now, Paul, Paul didn't have to front like he was art. Like, Paul, his name rang bells everywhere. They knew where he was from. They knew where he was at. So of all people, Paul was a very interesting person to talk about this, this thing of goodness. Now, Paul, on the road to Damascus, who was then Saul, encountered the living God, and it did something to him. It changed him. Paul was blinded by the light, and he saw things in a new light. He saw a new way of seeing things. 
And so for Paul, he knew that Jesus, who knew what I did, knew all the sin, knew what I did to his followers, that God could forgive a man like me? When he fully internalized that, it made it particularly clear to him that God is good despite what I've done, and God is good despite of whatever circumstances are going on around me. And now Paul didn't just want to lay there. He didn't just want to stop there. Paul was just like, I want that. Like whatever he did, whatever energy, whatever goodness that he had to actually take hold of me, I want that. Uh, there was this uh, meme that would kind of went on fire on the internet. Uh, you guys see this meme? Remember this meme? You know, people meme this to death, right? <laughs> and Paul was, like, Paul was looking at that. He's just like, you know, I want, like Christ looked at me like that. I want to love these people like Biden loved Obama. That's how he was looking at it, right? And Paul was clear. Um, I don't want to get too academic with uh, the biblical Greek, but with the interesting word, the word for press on is dioko. Um, he uses the word dioko. That means to press on, but it's actually the same word and root uh, that Paul used to actually describe persecuting the church in verse 6, diokon. So it's effectively what Paul is saying is that I am persecuting myself. I am sacrificing myself to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And Paul knew that. And Paul was clear that in order for him to experience joy, he had to pursue God wholeheartedly. And you need to know that too. Now, the last fear um, is whether living for God is worth it. Is it worth it? Now, even if you believe God is real, even if you believe God is good, if you question whether the costs outweigh the benefits in your pursuit of Christ, you're not going to pursue him and you're not going to experience joy. Now, what if the larger question, what if the core question was, what if this life, what if everything that we're doing is not about really this life, this present life, but the eternal one beyond it? And now Paul, Paul is essentially calling the Philippians to take hold of that. And even in verse 14, he says this, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And Paul is encouraging them to set their minds beyond the world. And the truth is we're all searching for joy. We are all searching for joy in all areas of our lives with the hope that these things are going to fulfill us eternally. We want these things to last forever. So whether you got the job, now that you got the job of your dreams, you've gotten the, 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 the relationship you've always hoped for, the sad, the, the, uh, the sad thing that happens is that you encounter yet another fear, losing it. And you cannot be settled. You cannot be content in something and putting your life and putting all of your energy in something that you can lose. Again, joy is not happiness. As opposed to, as opposed to happiness, joy is an attitude of the heart. It's not a temporary emotion. It's an attitude of the heart that is settled, that is secure, and that is stable. What Paul is underscoring for all of us is that you cannot be settled in something that your hands create because ultimately that thing will pass away. And ultimately, you're going to deal with another fear, and that is a treadmill. That is not freedom at all. And now Paul ultimately, uh, you know, pushes this, uh, but I actually think that C.S. Lewis actually had a great, uh, you know, uh, quote that I think captures this dynamic. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And then the message is this, your present will soon be your past. But God's presence to us is a secure future that will always last. You have to know that. 
Now, for us, the great thing is that Paul doesn't just leave us there because we have to think about the question, how do we respond to this? Yes, you told me about all the fears. You told me about all these things. How do we respond? And lucky for us, Paul gives us some insight, tactical insight into what we could do to respond to this message. And Paul does it in three ways. He points us to the people of God. He points us to prayer with God. And he points us to the person of God, the people of God. Uh, Paul is saying that you can't be on this journey alone. You were never meant to be straining alone, which is why Paul is consistently saying, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, join together, join together, join together, because he knew that you, just like him, had to have, you had to have regular encounters with Christ in order for you to want to overcome. And you being in community allows you to have regular encounters with witness, with circumstances, with real stories of how Christ has been transforming lives. In Philippians 127, he says, stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So what does that mean practically? That means practically you have to be connected in Christian community. I hear a lot from friends, and I understand it. A lot of them say, you know what? I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ, but uh, I don't do church. I don't do church. But the truth is, and Paul is making it quite plain, that you cannot grow. Anytime you meet an obstacle, you're not going to be able to overcome it because you need to be straining in a community of people straining in the same direction. The second thing Paul does is that he points us to prayer with God. Now, if we really take hold of this reality that God is real, uh, God is good, and that living for Christ is actually worth it, then you're going to want to communicate with it. If this person is directing the will of your life, I want to tell him how I'm feeling about it. I want to communicate with him. And the beauty of prayer is that it's not a one-way street. It's two ways. And God speaks to us, but he also speaks to us in the living word. So practically, what does that mean? Is that you actually have to be in scripture. So whether it's your CBR and being a part of that community Bible reading, or it is just every day looking at the scriptures, uncovering it, reading, learning, learning, you need to do that so you can have more intimate encounters with Christ through scripture. And lastly, Paul points us to the person of God. And here's the good news. Through Jesus Christ, God came down into our world on a great rescue mission, pursuing us because what? We were his ultimate joy. We were his ultimate joy. How could you fear a God who says that you are my ultimate joy? Because if you believe that, you would strain towards him and you would look past anything else that was trying to entice you in the same way that God is calling you to him. And in Hebrews, the actually author in Hebrews 12 too, the author says, um, uh, uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, all because he loved you. He was compelled to overcome not only fear, but death itself because of love. And it isn't, isn't that all what we strain for in life? Love? You hear it in movies, in music. We all strain for love. And you know what love we want? We want a love that's infinite. We want a love that's mutual. And we want a love that's personal, right? And the beauty of it is that for us, for us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, that love is a person and not a person on earth, but the creator of all of earth and every living and object thing within it. So there is nothing apart from God that will ultimately be able to fulfill you. I love when we, are in the music, we hear music and people say, I will go through hell and back for you. But at the cross, Jesus was the only one who actually did that for you and me. And even if you strain, and the beauty of it, the grace of it, is that even if you strain and you struggle to press on, 
in God, in Jesus Christ, we receive the benefit of the one who pressed on to the very end, his end, and rose to the right hand of the Father, all because he loved us. So if you ask the question, what would you do if we had no fears about God? I think we would strain towards him. And in doing so, we'd be able to experience joy because we remembered that we were his. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, God, thank you, God, that we get to hear your word, God. But in James 4, 8, you say, God, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. God, you are real. You are good. And you are worth it, God. Give us the strength. Give us the courage to overcome our fears because we will remember that you, you see us as your ultimate joy. God, allow us to be moved by this. We thank you in Jesus' righteous and holy name. Amen. Give it up for Lawrence, y'all.